Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. My solo show, Escape Plan, is up now at Miles McHenry Gallery on 511 West 22nd Street. It's up until the 23rd of April. There's also a catalog for the show with an essay by Stephen Westfall. So if you get a chance, please check it out in Chelsea. And uh, the catalog is online on the Miles McHenry Gallery website. So if you can't get to the show and you can't grab a catalog, you can check it out on the website. Speaking of books, Why I Make Art, Contemporary Artist Stories About Life and Work, is my upcoming book about this podcast, which is coming out on Atelier Editions and shipping in May 2022. That's this May, so it's in pre-order. Please go to atelier-editions.com and you can order the book there. It's only $25. It's a thick book. It's got a lot in it. And uh, you can get it at atelier-editions.com. Pre-order really helps. So if you're interested in this book, which has deeper dives on a lot of artists, it's got a lot of images, sketches from the guest book that they've done whenever I've done the podcast with certain artists, everyone from Jules de Ballancourt to Diana Al-Hadid, Louis Fratino, Tony Matelli, Aaron Riley, Robin Williams, just a ton of great artists. And uh, I'm really proud of the book. I think it's going to be great, and, and hopefully you can check it out. So Atelier Editions, or you can go to soundandvisionpodcast.com, and there's a book link there to pre-order. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden makes some of the best acrylic paints and mediums that you can use. They also make core watercolors and Williamsburg oil paints, which are equally exceptional. You can find them at your local art store or online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Seattle-based Fulcrum makes incredible coffee, which you can get delivered to your door. Check out their coffee at fulcrumcoffee.com and use the code ALFREDSTUDIO for 20% off your order. That's an exclusive just for Sound and Vision listeners. Check out their site and their coffee today. Anna Conway was born in 1973 in Durango, Colorado. She received her BFA from the Cooper Union of the Advancement of Science and Art and later received her MFA from Columbia University School of the Arts. Anna was the recipient of two awards from the Paula Krasner Foundation in 2005 and 2011, the William Metcalf Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters in 2008, and the John Simon Guggenheim Fellowship in 2014. Her recent solo exhibitions include Fergus McCaffrey Gallery in New York, the Collection Maramati in Reggio Emilia, Italy, the American Contemporary in New York, Guild in Grayskull in New York, and her recent group exhibitions include In My Room at the Freyland Museum of Art in Virginia, the Blast Bruce Annual, the Bruce High Quality Foundation in New York, Unchartered at the University Art Museum at the State University of New York in Albany, the Invitational Exhibition of Visual Arts in the American Academy of Arts and Letters in New York and Greater New York at PS1, Contemporary Art Center in Long Island City. 
Anna and I spoke about growing up in Foxborough, attending many schools, working in parking lots, sincerity in painting, scrolls and scrolling, and much more. Here's our conversation. Okay, let's just start now, though. Like, okay, ready? I'm going to count three, And we'll do it funny. Ready? Act three, two, two one, one, go. Hello. Hi, Anna. <laughs> so I hear you grew up in Boston. I, um, I was born... A pleasant area in Boston. I was born in Durango, Colorado, and then we moved to Green Bay, Wisconsin for a little while, and then we moved to Foxborough, Massachusetts, where I started second grade. So I lived in Foxborough, Massachusetts from second grade until I graduated from high school. I graduated from high school there. Was your was your father or mother worked for the NFL or something? Were you, <laughs> you were no, like in I Colorado, have... Green Bay, and then Foxborough? It sounds like, I know. It's like you're following stadiums. My father actually um, got a PhD um, in history and started teaching history classes, but um, he was a little older and didn't end up the, the full-time job, the only full-time teaching job he had uh, for at one point he taught it down in Rhode Island. But um, his main t- teaching gig had been out at Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado. and um, and then, his father died. We moved out to be closer to his mom. And then my dad ended up becoming a computer salesman, actually. Oh, wow. Such a... Now, did you do that the over the computer so or did you do that door to door? I know he worked for Digital Equipment Corporation, which okay. famously thought people didn't want to have their own computers. So they were focusing on something else, I think. <laughs> So they, they, they missed that window. Um, and they were, yeah, I remember when my dad was laid off that, yeah, that company collapsed. It's gone now, but, um, yeah. So, so the child, I don't know why we, I don't have any idea why they picked Foxborough actually. I don't know why I've never even asked them that, but it was something we got to figure out here. (laughs) Foxborough was a strange place to grow up. I, I actually still remember right Right when we moved there, um, hearing, I I was on my swing set in my backyard and I could hear the police who are playing a concert. You can hear oh, it's I a small you meant, town like, the and all. The, the only thing <laughs> in the town is that massive stadium. I mean, I I've, yeah. I've gone back there periodically. It's it's very depressing. It's I don't, I'm not yeah. The downtown area is awful now. It's I don't think it was ever really nice, but it's it, it's a depressing town to me. I, I'm sure if you love football and, um, you know, there's plenty of people, I'm sure, that think Foxborough is an exciting place. Yeah, for to tailgate probably, oh, but not yeah. maybe to grow up in, you know. Yeah, it's, it's like no, that it's, with sports. It's like sometimes you go some, it, it There's the sport aspect of it, but when you take it away, you know, what's left? You know what r- I mean? Right, I mean... The the thing too is I was in an all girl family. I have sisters, and um, to be in an NFL town, especially I guess the eighties, uh, where you know basically you'd shuffle from one 
man event to another, you know, where it was, it was the NFL teams. And then when it wasn't the NFL, it was, uh, you know, these huge bands playing. So I worked at the stadium from a young age. I started doing odd jobs, clicking cars, as they'd say, clicking cars in the right. packing lot. <laughs> and <laughs> by, by the habit. <laughs> I never come in. Just... Retrospectively, years later, I realized how absurd it was that I was doing that because I, I was supposed to. I was like this goody, goody, sweet Catholic girl. And I was meant to be keeping, I was supposed to click click every time a cab drove by and so so i was essentially preventing you know the the money the cash guy from stealing and he 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 said to me a few times don't click the next five cars and i was like oh okay (laughs) so i I just did whatever he told me and i realized of course i was helping him i was aiding him in stealing my yeah. skimming some off the I top. I did not know that. Uh, of course, I was like, I think I was 12 years old when I had that Oh, my job God. How could you 13. be in that environment? I'm not blaming your parents, but it sounds like just a toxic testosterone crockpot. It really was. It was intensely so. I mean, even when Grateful Dead were there, um, and this is in my work, so this isn't a complete waste, I suppose, to talk about because this 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 groundwork was laid at such a, you know, when your senses, I mean, when you're moving from adolescent, when you're kind of becoming um, who you're meant to be, I mean, of course, at that age, you're just searching for yourself high and low. And right. the, the reflections, I mean, even the Grateful Dead, when they were there, that was a whole bro thing too. I mean, that that was a lot of male energy there was just you know and I was I was a mouse of a kid too I was not very big and um I was short and skinny and I felt so weak and little but my mother I you know my mom grew up on a farm my mom was a petite person too but she built all of our furniture growing up she had she built everything she would it was super embarrassing now people are like oh how cool your mom was a builder But, um, you know, she was this petite person who would bust open the garage and she had all sorts of power tools. She built our dining room table, benches, our beds. She built loft beds and she did it actually in the summers for money. She would build loft beds for kids in the neighborhood and bunk beds four by fours, (laughs) four by fours. But, um, she, when I was 14, she brought, you know, we went to the courthouse to get working papers to make it legal for me to work a full-time job. And I became a bank teller when I was 14. And I think teller. it was my mom's, yeah, I think my mom's background as a farm kid. I mean, she always worked. So we didn't do camps. I wasn't, yeah. So I really sound like a spicy <laughs> old person now. Like, I never went to camp. I when I was young, I, we working. used to work in banks. I did joke <laughs> with my mom when, as she was dying. I said, Mom, I feel like I should retire now. You had me working at such a young age that it's it's altered my sense of how 
<laughs> how old I am. I feel like I'm supposed to. You've hit you know, the feeling of retirement like, age. Am I at the end of my life? Oh, I'm in my 40s. This is when it ends, right? This is the... So what happens when you start working at five? Yeah, I, I, I'm living in the 1800s, basically. Oh, man. My life expectancy is, you know, coming coming to a close. Anyway. Well, do you feel like it, it created a good work ethic like is it serving you now or do you feel traumatized by it or maybe oh, a little both so, i've thought a lot about it because um it had it did create a lot of anxiety and i was always trying to have a backup plan um you know when i was at columbia even as a graduate student when it was clear i was on on a path it was actually leon golub um i was Leon Golub's assistant, and he was the one who encouraged me to apply to graduate school. Um, and I just did it on a whim. And then when I got in, I, you know, I, I was excited, and I'd gone to Cooper Union finally. I'd finally graduated from Cooper Union, and actually, as I was telling you before we started, I'd gone to Carnegie Mellon. For a year I'd actually started my second year there and my house which was uninsured at the time where we lived um, in Pittsburgh no my parents had moved oh, in okay, with my grandmother home. and we we lived on the coast in Massachusetts at that point we left Foxborough and we moved to um, this area on the south shore of Massachusetts and our house was destroyed in that perfect storm remember that I mean, a movie was made about it, so I just always right. call it the perfect storm. It was yeah, a, yeah. it was a very what weird event, that? and it 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 completely demolished the house. It was Jeez. down to nothing. There was a condemned notice on the house, so it was torn down, and we built from scratch, you know, with uh, you know a house on stilts. It had been on very small stilts before, but um, we were uninsured because my father had been out of work, and so I ended up leaving Carnegie Mellon and becoming a an office manager in downtown Boston for a couple of years and to try to get some money. And I ended up never even using my credits from Carnegie Mellon because my, I'd never paid off the tuition bill there. But um, when I went to, by the time, you know, this anxiety about finance d definitely followed me around and still haunts me to this day. But I, um, I ended up at Carnegie, you know, at uh, Columbia. I mean, um, I worked while I was at Cooper Union and I worked for Nancy Spiro and Leon Gall, which was absolutely awesome. And then when I was at Columbia, I decided I had to have a skill set besides making paintings or trying to survive as an artist. Because I also actually, when I was with Leon and Nancy, I also saw how challenging it could be to be an artist for decade after decade. I mean, there was something awesome about the fact that at such a young age, I was watching artists in their 70s, you know. Um, Still doing it. Yeah, still doing it and making jokes about it. I remember Leon would sometimes say, yeah, sometimes the phone doesn't ring for a decade. Right, Nancy? And they would laugh because they were they had <laughs> like lived highs and lows at, you know, right. throughout well, their cyclical. careers where they were ignored or or, you know, a little bit out of fashion. And then yeah. and then the tides came back in. But um, I've learned that from a lot of, you know, artists who've been around that I know have been around the block for you know, a long time is they're like, it's basically, you know, it's like tides, like yes. it's going to, it's going to ebb and, and flow and it's going to swell and recede and you just have to keep on the surfboard, you know, or keep in the boat and right. things will go up and down, but 
those who, you know, stay there for the ride basically have a chance of like sustaining and it's not easy, but it's like that pretty much for everyone, it seems. No, yeah, I and I think for, you know, I suppose, I mean, I can't speak for, um, well, I mean, they were very clear about that, that there were, you know, they also raised three kids. They lived in Europe at different points. It did, it just did give me a, a, a very vast perspective on being an artist, just being yeah. with people who had, you know, raised children, been artists, taught, you know, I got to see that full spectrum. But by the time, I think what I, my point that I get lost in the weeds, this happens to me too. I spend so much, you probably do too, I spend so much time alone in my studio that it's, it's like I'm practicing speaking again or something. <laughs> well, I mean, this has helped me get a little oh, more yeah, off my chest yeah, doing this every week. But yeah, I, I know what you mean. I spent 10 years after grad school just like in a cave. Right, <laughs> just, right. You know, talking to myself all day. Right. Yeah. Literally, out loud. Literally. Yeah, yes. That's, sometimes <laughs> I, I test my voice or, you know, I have dogs around during the day that I, they're always around me. Um, I've always actually almost always worked where I live, which I like. I don't have that distraction problem for some reason. I can work and live. I, I, I've always liked that. Plus, my paintings well, aren't enormous. I mean, I don't need elevators and right. machinery or anything. Yeah, that's I don't even uh, I, working I for Leon a, probably showed I, you, right? Like, what's that? That's the, I'm sure working for Leon showed you the, the complexities of working at a grand scale, you know. But they lived where they worked, actually. It was Soho Loft, right? That's Is it so in Soho? Funny. I haven't even thought about that fact. Yeah, they they had bedrooms off of their studios and their kitchen. Yeah, they lived they lived in their Soho. Yeah, um, on LaGuardia Place. Yeah. Yeah. D- had you been there before? No, I just know. I, I mean, I think my years of knowing of artists who lived in Soho, you hear about people who've had studios there forever. Like Alex right. Katz has been in the same spot for. I mean, why would you give it up? You know. Right. Big ass loft. It's kind of at this point, it's almost romantic to think about that kind of situation. But yeah, I used to live where I worked and then I had my kid and then I for some reason I just felt like, oh, I can't do this here anymore. I got to move it for safety or for all that. You know, right. I probably could have kept it, but it it, it does get it does get difficult to do that. Yeah, I had a I had to put a lock on my outside of my doors when Simone was little my kid was little so she wouldn't go in there and electric fence just put yeah, a electric. <laughs> put a zap them if they get close <laughs> that'll teach you <laughs> stay away from the paint you little monkey yeah it's I do like living where I work though and I think during the pandemic because I did have for years and years a studio where my apartment was it felt like okay I'm just gonna work a little smaller than I than I right. do sometimes so Right. But yeah, the commute's great. You know, you'd have your coffee if you need a refill. It's just right there. You don't have to go down. You just, it's everything that's kind of comfortable in that sense. Right. Some people, though, need the, you know, no distraction somewhere else. Dana Schatz worked. I I met her when I was at Columbia, and her studio is right next to mine and down the hall a couple doors. And she's someone who, shouldn't work at home. Uh, don't I know it. She, you probably met her right after I met, met her because we went to Skowhegan together. And I think she went to Columbia after that, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. So yeah. you met her in 2000, probably. I did. In yeah, we were at Skowhegan in 99 and I went to her studio. And it, yeah, it was... Explosive. 
there was, was a lot going on. It was, uh, I, I swear I walked in with like normal shoes and I walked out and they were covered in paint. Uh, she, she wore a hazmat suit and, and I'll, I'll never forget introducing her to my cousin. And she said, oh, she looked down. She goes, oh, it looks like a baby had explosive diarrhea on me. And she had just this brown <laughs> this smear all over the middle Sludge, of her, yeah. her hazmat suit. Yeah. Her Tyvek yes. Yeah, she wore Tyvek suits while she painted. I mean, it's smart. It's incredible how art, you know, out of that that studio, such articulate paintings would come out because you'd look on the wall and the wall around it was just this vortex or disaster paint everywhere. And it, but such clarity was in her work. It's just right. fascinating, it, actually. Yeah, it's like uh, those, you know, those investigative the crime investigation offices where like all that stuff is but then up on the board is like right. the map <laughs> that like places the ground. but she um yeah I, when i walked into our studio it reminded me of francis the pictures of francis bacon's yeah, studio where absolutely. it's just like right you know some people have messy bedrooms and then when they leave the apartment they look crisp and clean and their outfit's great but you know it takes a village well, my of, studio of, actually isn't neat i don't have a um yeah, my studio gets pretty messy, but I do enjoy having it. I mean, I don't throw paint around, except with the exception of the the beginning when I'm making a painting. It is pretty sloppy and very abstract and just paints. Yeah, I guess I am kind of, you know, painting. In the early stages. Then yeah, you in the early too. stages. That's like, like Matt that. Bollinger does that. You know, I talked to him and I've seen videos of his early painting process and it's just real messy and physical and then it, it kind of comes in you know it's like musicians who just start jamming it's like a you know a cacophony and then all of a sudden after over time they just fine-tune it into a right. song right it's pretty cool and then there's the other people who are just like need freaks and you know it's like very specific or right messy messy is messy does and messy studio and the paintings look just like the mess we, yeah. we come in all kinds don't we <laughs> i know it's true it's yeah, it's a smorgasbord. Yeah, humans are humans are fascinating, and certainly, yeah, I've thought a lot about. Um, I've thought a lot about how much you are yourself too. I mean, I can't. I've tried to paint different ways, and I always end up imagining. A space and the space that I'm imagining in my painting is getting more and more you know articulated and I just have to kind of follow it to the end I don't it does seem like it kind of leads me to the finish line that I'm not I don't feel like I'm making <laughs> it's a funny thing I mean it sounds so like woo woo but I don't feel like I'm making the decisions they're kind of happening to me and I'm just uh, going for the ride in a funny way. No, it's a beautiful thing. I think that's, you know, I don't know if that's woo-woo. I mean, that's that's sort of like romanticized in the music world of like people just say like a song came to me. You know, I'm just in there noodling and it, it just came out of yeah. the act of playing and I, it just, who knows where it comes from. Right. Because really, you know, who knows where our influence exactly comes from or our, or our feel or our tendency or natural way of doing stuff. That's kind of what makes it 
interesting to have all these, you know, tens of thousands of artists or whatever, however many are, you know, around where we are just doing what they're doing. When did you first start the whole creative thing? Like, it sounded like you, you st- I mean, well, I if you started off with like what you were talking about, like biological illustrations or yeah, that's I, a hybrid. I guess the very beginning, I, I think the very beginning of me realizing that I not only really loved drawing, but actually, it's funny because I don't make drawings anymore at all. I don't draw, I can't remember. I yeah, love painting. I just paint. <laughs> I don't make preparatory studies. I was recently having a conversation with this about um, with Bob Nickus. Do you know Bob Nickus? Not personally, but I, yeah. I'm familiar he's, with him, yeah, of course. He's, he's great. I, he's such a good writer, too. Um, I've kept up a friendship with him for years. and um, Yeah, I've... I, I've never even needed or wanted or thought about preparatory studies, but looking back and I don't draw, I absolutely, once I started painting, I loved painting. And when I was, I was in printmaking for a while at, um, Cooper union, I actually worked in the print shop. I was a print shop technician. And of course I was working with Leon Golub and Nancy Spiro and doing printmaking for Nancy. Um, and, uh, but I, I quickly shifted to, lithography which was so much looser I couldn't stand the tight lines I stopped enjoying lines and looking back though the very the very beginning of me probably realizing I was going to do something like art and I say that because I didn't Foxborough didn't have I I wasn't I wasn't aware that I could be a living artist. I didn't even, I actually don't think I even knew of any living artists. I, I thought that I had to be something useful. And I've, I've thought a lot about that. Um, In fact, during my Brooklyn rail interview, uh, actually Fong at the end brought up um, song of the lark, Willa Cather. I was talking about Willa Cather, a writer who wrote about um, the Midwest and Someone who definitely influenced me in an, in an interesting way, looking back. But Song of the Lark, you know, is about that. I think my mother growing up on a farm felt people had to be very useful. And right. I felt like that. And so when I was in high school, I was taking advanced biology. And it was when I was making my lab reports, I was drawing these intricate and and coloring them with colored pencils. I was making these really intricate lab reports and it was actually my biology teacher said, you should really go into biological illustration. (laughs) The funny thing now is this was right before the computers really took over. Um, I mean, it was, I would have been, I don't know what would have happened if I became like an old timey, you know, it's like living in the 1600s or something. Medical um, illustration, drawing, drawing the body <laughs> with a little sketch set, you know. And of course, after Photoshop and everything, the advent of all of that, it would have been looked ridiculous to be walking around with a sketch pad at um, doing anatomy study. But that is what I wanted to do. I wanted to become a biological illustrator. And, uh, but then after, you know, after I left 
UC Berkeley and ended up going to Carnegie Mellon and uh, being around people who were artists. I guess that then I started, you know, drawing more seriously and um, and and actually by a, a very weird turn of events. I like I said, my I had to leave college um, after my house had been destroyed and so I was working as as this uh office manager and I got a phone call from the girlfriend of my former TA who was really sorry to see me leave I'd won the drawing award at Carnegie Mellon and I I was so upset about having to leave Carnegie Mellon and they asked me to work at the Whitney Biennial and it was the 93 Whitney Biennial and I was was in that I feel like I had that book I was in I was like a teenager at that point I I mean, I think or twenty, but the '93 Witch Biennial was uh, Cindy Sherman, Matthew, Matthew Barney. Barney. Yeah, um, I remember that one. It was and, political, or it was it was very yeah. It's, it's a very it's it was a very was big biennial historically. Yeah. It's been talked about since then, but right. I met Matthew Barney. I remember asking him. These are movies. Wait, are these movies? I I mean, I didn't know what video art was. What are you doing, buddy? um, And I was coming out of my just, I mean, all I'd all I'd learned about myself was that I could draw the body. And I loved I loved having this manual dexterity. I loved doing something like that with my hands. And at that point, I had no idea that I couldn't really understand content. I mean, that to me was such a mystery. And but I loved I loved reading and I was I guess somewhere along there I started realizing after being around Nancy and Leon like, "Oh, there's this thing, you know, this thing, art." <laughs> you know. Yeah. You well, with with your education, can we just quickly as like a side note, take me through just, you know, 30 seconds here. What was the order of your education? So you started in Berkeley. Well, I went to I went to UC Berkeley and immediately did not didn't, didn't did take. not like okay. it was it was overwhelming. I'd come from this like small geeky little town and I I found UC Berkeley to be huge plus they had a tuition hike that year. It was something like a 60% tuition hike and I was Jesus. paying out of state which my father said, I can't, I, we can't afford that. And um, Carnegie Mellon had actually offered me a, a, a big financial package. So I ended up trans- leaving and going to Carnegie Mellon. And Where did you live in Pittsburgh? Do um, you I lived on, I lived in a dorm, Donner Hall. Um, in Oakland, probably. I lived in, uh, right on campus. I lived in yeah. the dorm and then the, the, I, I had to leave in the middle of a semester, actually, of my second year. I left in October. Um, my my dad just said he needed me to start earning money, basically. we I had to move back home and just, you know, become, it's like that old school. That's why it feels like I lived in the 1800s. Like, we need another body back home to start earning a living. Um, so I left, but I lived on Fifth Avenue, I remember. Um, right, yeah. Yeah. I, and I make all the jokes. I live on Fifth Avenue. Right. Not the same. Monopoly. Not the same. <laughs> not the same vibe. <laughs> not the same vibe. Yeah. But um, 
And then I ended up going, actually, God bless Leon Golub. He called, he knew I was out of college and I couldn't pay off my tuition at Carnegie Mellon. Um, and he called SUNY Purchase and I hadn't even applied and they let me kind of on his recommendation. Wow. I mean, I don't even know if I should be saying this, but whatever, it was back in the nineties. Things were a yeah. little crazy. I, I ended up, they, they said they'd sort it out later. So I, I went to um, SUNY Purchase for only one semester because I ended up getting into Cooper Union as a transfer student. Hell? So Jeez, yeah, all over the place. So many schools. Can you stop and have a cup of tea before you jump somewhere? No, <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> but the cool thing about I was, you know, at SUNY Purchase, I couldn't work for Nancy and Leon. But then when I got back to um, Cooper Union. I would work as a student. I ended up working for them too. Um, and how so, yeah, meet, this anxiety wait, did you about working. how you met them? Um, it was that random phone call when I was a, when I was out of college um, from the girlfriend of my TA at Carnegie right. Mellon. Oh, and right, and right, right, he right. knew, there he'd been go. my freshman TA and um, he knew that someone with skills was, have you know out of school i was stuck yeah. out of school so i yeah i came down and worked at the whitney biennial so that's when i met them actually it was what's funny right how your life can just i mean this goes for everyone but i think in hearing how your story of like how much movement and all this oh, dynamic so much, going on yeah. of how like meeting that one person in the one place just changes the trajectory of your life completely no it's fascinating. I, I yeah i i think sometimes it almost gives me chills how um i mean maybe i would have come to it in a funny way sometimes i read about people like wallace stevens who i don't know he was some sort of i think he was an insurance guy but but would write poetry in his spare time i mean i think that desire yeah yeah that creative curiosity is i guess an itch that needs to be scratched eventually and you come right. to how to do that um yeah it's not going away it's going to manifest in some way shape or form i guess maybe it's just a different a slightly different path to where you're trying to go you know yeah i have i only have one distinctive feature um maybe this is my only distinctive feature as a human that i don't share with the rest <laughs> of the human race but i um i don't like movies and acting really i've I just see that. never i don't i don't like having everything served up at once like soundtracks plus moving you know just the whole i love i love absolutely love the stillness of painting i love that there's so much information missing there's no sound there's no movement um i love that they feel arrested you know in their even when it's a really active painting, like a Francis Bacon painting, right. um, I find it so jarring and wonderful. And I've talked about this before. Like I, I love to stand in front of a painting for so long that it, it almost seems like it's starting to move, you know? Yeah, um, totally. So yeah, I, I think I would have naturally looked to something about the visual arts uh, 
to just have a voice about that or to reflect on being human through that, you know, that, I guess I, it's not even a medium, like visual arts isn't exactly a medium for just, just as a, uh, as a, another lens to, to yeah. view the world through. Um, and it's it's like it's focused. You're saying that you enjoy that it's this frozen. Whereas like a movie is basically trying to mimic life all in all. It's like a right. you know parallel narrative, a parallel existence. Whereas painting or photography or things like that are just this. It's concentrated down to you know a statement or an idea or an image that's a little more f- frozen, so you can contemplate it. Maybe it's you also like more to be conversation. more active. It's more conversational, right? It yeah. invites the other. You know, I, I mean, even when you're reading a book, you feel almost invited, or I shouldn't say you, I feel invited to a conversation, even when yes. I'm, um, you know, we were talking about earlier that I have that funny uh, left, it was such a big part of my childhood, I shared it with one of my sisters, you know, when we were in a really quiet place, like a funeral or a church, we felt like yelling out. You know, we were afraid that we were going to scream and or do something or say something. And um, I think that's what I do. I think that's what I love that, you know, when you're reading an author, let's say, that they're they're really trying to um, carve carve out a space for you to see something and hear something, you know, and it, it's never Definitely. there. There isn't it's not there's not one set agreed on character like you know how how that character looks to one person or another how that experience was um is translated by it's there's always the translator that the person you know looking at it um and i also think actually i've never articulated this but i when i was young i started playing piano um and it was a rather extraordinary piano teacher who had no children and really kind of loved me like her own child and I I felt like I couldn't quit piano actually it was really painful I didn't want to keep playing classical piano because I felt really constrained by it I felt like I had to learn you know you have to follow all the notes that they left for you you have to follow all the notations that they left for you how to play it and what to feel while you're playing it and um she had this habit of when she was going to introduce me to a new piece i was allowed to pick from a few different pieces and she would play them and i always i'll never forget she would always say god you always pick chopin and i think because chopin was was odd and you could elongate it, it there was so much you know there were there were so many minor chords it was just like sad and i i have to admit i didn't feel like he was a dictator sometimes when i would read box music i thought why do i have to play it exactly like you told me and there's no room for me in it but um, there's no expression right? as as geeky and again i sound like i'm in the 1800s but but the you know, the privilege of playing Chopin or something with that, um, being able to translate him, his music was that, I think that also too was a very early 
like the seeds are planted to, you know, to, to, to that, that appreciation of someone offering me a way to see something, you know, there's so much bittersweetness in his music that, um, yeah, that felt like such a gift to be able to work with him. I used to close my eyes sometimes and play his music and think that he was in the room. I loved thinking that <laughs> he m- maybe thought I was good enough that he would drop in for a few seconds. I really was into ghosts when I was a kid. <laughs> oh, wow. What does yeah. Chopin look like? I mean, does he wear he one of those was funny very, um He looked very frail. I, I used to stare at etchings of him and, you know, drawings of him that were on the cover of my music. He was kind of um, very slight, almost feminine looking. Actually, he kind of reminded me of me. He was kind of like, he seemed to have dark hair and skinny and kind of awkward looking, I guess. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you were Chopin in a previous life. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> he couldn't, nobody would, the karma to force him to live in Fox from Massachusetts hey, maybe would be he did too something. cruel. <laughs> <laughs> to deserve that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, th- not to go off topic, but I just want to reconnect with it. We got as far as Cooper Union. So you moved to, down to Cooper Union. Was that the last stop in the academic trail? No, then I went to Columbia for graduate school. Oh, that's but right. I did yeah, yeah. finally, finally get a bachelor's that. degree right, after right. much after much ado, as they would say. Um, <laughs> well, you're dipping your toes degree. in different pools, you know, just testing the water in different places but cooper was where you you dug in and you started really making work i guess and i got yeah i got my bachelor's there and i started um yeah i started making work there and realizing that yeah it could that there were living artists around i met leon and nancy and i started kind of um god i hate when i say kind of and sort of by the way, that's all over radio podcasts. Every oh, I'm sure I do when, it all I, the time. when you think like, about sort of like and um, sort of has really taken over. Um, it's it's almost well, it's, like a little it, virus word. Yeah, but it's better than um, isn't it? I think so. I did or like I did find it very when Obama would speak, he had these wonderful pauses where he he didn't fill the space in with any yeah it's like a good musician you just sit in the pocket you let that beat hang there for a second you come back in on the one yeah that's good that's rhythm yeah that's also taking a pace with your mind i think people who get in their mind get too you know the wheels start spinning faster than the mouth is moving faster than the mind it just gets all out of whack you know you just have to be comfortable taking your pace with it you know right it's like poetry in that sense yeah yeah, it's, I call it not giving a shit. Like once you start not giving a shit what people think, you can just sit back and, oh, you yeah, know, do it nice. on your pace. It's a I'm, good place I'm to be. I'm the middle child. I think I... I You're allergic to that sensibility? I No, I, <laughs> I think that I worry about, you know, I, 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 I'm probably more of a space filler. My mother was awkward, very awkward growing up and was sort of introverted and... I used to look at people looking at her oddly and try to fill in. I think most That's people's sweet. mothers I grew up with were, you know, chatty and smiley and 
sort of loud. And I had this mother who, and that's actually coming back full circle to this, my Willa Cather moment. Um, because I was introduced to Willa Cather in high school. I, I didn't, I, I stumbled on Willa Cather because I, my mom had talked so much about her mother who was, who I never knew. Um, she died when I was really young and, and my grandmother, I found it fascinating that my grandmother had never felt happy where she lived her whole life. She was born and died in the Midwest and um, my mother would hint at her unhappiness. And I think I found that fascinating to, to realize you could possibly die unhappy. You know, you could not find yourself or not find what you wanted to do. And that seemed so tragic. And I remember a couple of times my mother mentioned something about Willa Cather, Nebraska. My grandmother had grown up in Nebraska. And so I read O Pioneers and um, I read uh, My Antonia. And just recently I reread My Antonia with my daughter and found it incredibly touching. And uh, that that feeling of, I, I think being physically isolated like you could be growing up on a farm like my mother did of course you're going to be comfortable with silence my mother you know lived in a big family in a remote area so I'm sure there were walls and walls of silence around her um, all the time but what do you think is more sad do you think it's going through life and not finding that thing that you want to do and feeling sort of like empty of that or finding the thing you love to do and then when you pass you feel like you haven't been able to like you're going to be divorced from that thing that you love so much oh right um letting go of life i guess yeah i just being like you know like if you're a painter and you just love painting and then you're you know you're in your final moments you're like well i still wanted to make more paintings whereas the person who just didn't find that they're like yeah i'm ready for the next step there's nothing holding me back here right (laughs) Sorry, that's a little morbid, I guess, but... Although there's always something... I mean, my mother didn't... My mom... My mom died. We were all around her when she died, and um, she... She was really upset about going and then made peace with it. Like, on the third day, she was given a week to live. It was kind of a really weird situation. The, The medicine she was taking actually perforated her stomach and... It was, she really died from a side effect of medication, actually. And they just said, there's nothing we can do for her. This is it. She can't eat again. It's over. It was so shocking that, you know, she was given a week to live. So she came, she said, oh, I want to go home to die. And so she died in our living room with us. But I do have to say when she finally felt like she could let go and she wasn't fearful, that was such an amazing relief. It was like, you know. It was a very emotional and kind of spiritual moment of my life, actually, and I'm really glad I was there for it. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've, I found out, you know, when I found out Leon Golub, I loved Leon Golub as a person. He was so funny and so kind, and I um, had been around a lot of, aggressive and sexist men in my life just growing up where I did and he was so uh gentle and kind and treated um you know 
me with a lot of dignity, even though I was just a, like a little scrappy uh, teenager when I, I met him who was uninformed. He liked teaching too, of course. He was a really good teacher, so he taught me you know, about art. Nancy was a lot more frail and um, tired. She slept more. She was, but when I found out he died, I was really, I was really sad about that. It would to, to think that you know we'll never get to see. It, it's that thing of seeing through someone else's eyes, like that right. goes back to that Chopin thing, or or you know, l- learning about um, learning about how somebody uh, leaves messages for us or as as viewers or leaves behind a, a cookie crumb trail of of their vision or whatever but you know i do know people who are who just love other work who, you know they don't necessarily make work but they're profoundly affected by it um right i had an uncle who loved opera and oh he was so content just to listen to opera it was funny yeah, it's kind of nice to, to like you don't have to make. You can just sort of take. And, and those are the people, like, there's nothing wrong with that. It's kind of like what you were talking about earlier. Those are kind of people who love movies. They don't necessarily want to create those things, but they love just having, just being a part of it or being washed over by some other narrative and letting someone right. tell them the story. You know, there's the people who like to write the kids' stories and and, you know, and then there's the people who just like to tell those bedtime stories that other people have written and interpreted it, and then there's the kids who just love to re- hear it. You know, they would right. just want you to tell them a story. It's all beautiful, really. It's just different ways of, of you know, in it, experiencing something outside of your day to day or something, which I think all art is trying to do. It's like asking questions or taking you slightly outside the humdrum nine to five of daily life. You know, which is what, ironically, is very depressing to a lot of people. The, the sort of mechanism of, you know, the same thing every day and not really finding that excitement, you know. Right. No, I think it's, um, I, I think it's, it takes a special kind of person to um, find solace in ritual or something. I think it, it's funny. I do think my mother was somebody who didn't expect life to, wow her I think she was prepared like her mother to you know just um maybe that well she did leave my mom did leave she left her farm and went to Boston actually which was a wild thing to do so um I guess maybe she did find her way out so that's it might have been a hard adjustment though right um yeah I think I think it was and she was older my mom didn't leave her family's housed until her late twenties. Um, she'd stayed and worked there, but, um, yeah, she, she went to Boston luckily. Otherwise I wouldn't exist. She met my dad in Boston. My dad's from Boston. We've talked a lot about so many things in relation to your life. And I feel like none of it has really been about your artwork or your painting necessarily, but I feel like so much more informed. Like when I look at your work now, I will see it completely different in a way and well, the same but well you know. I think I I do think and it might be um I, I think it might have to do with m- maybe my work specifically because I do I make pretty narrative work yeah and um I I'm trying to see things um through 
I'm trying to find out what my lens is, you know, how to, I, I will say one thing for myself. I've never made an insincere painting. I've never, um, I've never set out to make, let's say, I, I was saying this the other day. I've never, to, to Bob Nickus, I've never made a body of work. I've never thought about work as a project or I'm going to investigate something or I, I don't precisely know how it is, but the, the way work comes out of me has a lot to do with things I've seen or experienced or, um, or trying to come to terms with. And it might be that very deep impression that my mother left on me that, um, that her mother had a sort of a sadness about being so remote. And I spent time in the Midwest and I think that, that textured a lot of, um, it textures a lot of my work that there's a little bit of sadness in my work and humor. I think, Yeah. you know, there's a, there's a fullness of who I am that's in my work. Um, and I do think, yeah, those roots and, and a lot of that shapes it. Um, and it, my, you know, it's funny, my childhood was also punctuated with these like grand events that were happening at the stadium, which is really odd. And I likened it to seeing, you know, when you're, when you're 14 years old and you work at, you know, when you see the inside workings of a stadium, when you see the Rolling Stones too many nights in a row, and that, that is still a very remarkable experience I had was I saw the Rolling Stones, I was working at their concert and I saw them too many nights in a row and it it just I felt like in the Wizard of Oz where you just saw the wizard behind the scenes and I did I literally saw Mick Jagger he he had like someone rubbing his back like he had some kind of chiropractor um and I I have pictures of me with Bono and the edge from U2 and I they became these, you know, they were supposed to be mythical people, and they they really weren't, of course. And so there was something kind of crestfallen about that, you know, experiencing. So I, I guess I did, from an, uh, an early age, realize that that was, um, you know, that was a kind of a vacant promise that I was going to have to, that I was going to have to matter somehow to myself, you know, that right. that I wouldn't give over mattering to uh, you know, some, you know, coordinated event, some like huge person more important than me or a band, because I, I guess I did see that the inner workings, it didn't look, it didn't look that shiny from the inside, I suppose. Maybe it's good to have that experience, you know, I think it's, it's you never know. It it kind of kills something, and it's good. It's like it's like artists who get out of school and they work at a gallery right away. There's probably something really good about it in the sense that you see all the BS behind the scenes, and you're like, oh, this is what happens. But then it's bad in a way because it probably destroys a little bit of the mystique of the whole thing. Or like sure. if you go work on a movie set, you know, you go see the movie and it's like fantastic, but and it's like this other world. And then if you go on the set, you're like, oh, that's how the you know sausage is made. Right, right. It's good and bad. 
Right. Go to a slaughterhouse. You might feel weird about eating meat after that, but you know, maybe it's good that you know the process of how that shit happens. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't eat meat. My mother, Me too. <laughs> my mother always found it odd because she grew up on a farm. She actually had to slaughter her animals. She killed them herself sometimes, but, um, yeah. Ooh, yeah. I, I know. I'm right there with you. I saw a video when I was in an undergrad of slaughterhouse footage and I was like you know what I'm gonna give this uh, like not eating meat thing a try god I remember was, Sue do you remember the artist Sue Ko of course right? that was powerful work man she yeah. wasn't playing around she's still around right she's still doing it I think I you know what I don't know sometimes I'm that too, was that too was lost. some ballsy work man that was no joke is she on Instagram that might have been in that biennial if it wasn't in that biennial she was hitting she was a, around that time yeah like it yeah. was but yeah, yeah that stuff I saw that and I was like whoa that is that right. someone means business it's, and it, the it's, early Sue Williams work was no joke either, man. That was right, raw. Right, right. That's right, I remember. They were both great. Thank God for now, those artists, right? Yeah, especially as as a woman, yeah, it's inspiring to have um, role models and other women making interesting work around you. And um, and I think, I think too, some of this the laboring on my painting, because this is another aspect of my work that gets remarked on, and it's definitely something I'm doing, but there's a lot of labor in it. You know, they're, that old expression, labor intensive. Um, but I do think, what, going back to your question about, you know, what it all, you know, some of that, or the work ethic, or I think that's, there is something meditative and wonderful about about um, about working long and hard on something, and it doesn't yeah. necessarily. It's not, it, you know, it's not. It, it's very low end immediate gratification, that's for sure. But I don't think I've ever. I think I'm probably one of those people, like, like the kids that don't need immediate gratification. You know how that. <laughs> they do those studies with the kid who can wait and eat right. it later and save it up or something. Yeah. I probably learned that from my mother. She probably forced that in me. And so that's a part of me. But um, I do love to look at paintings that um, uh, that can contain, I, I guess I love all paintings that are good to me, you know, that, uh, that inspire me. But um, yeah, sometimes I can look at a really solid heavy painting I'm thinking oftentimes actually we're talking about Japan I I love Japanese prints and um, there's a density in in um, also Indian miniatures I think kind of relate to my work because some of the the big um, protagonists let's say in my work are actually tiny figures and small events going on and I think uh, yeah, I used to be really sad. I found it very depressing how few people in the Met go to see the uh, the Indian paintings, and um, and oftentimes the the Asian wing is quite empty. Uh, of course, our you know it's always packed in the European painting wing, but um, I I don't know. I I grew up really you know through 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 undergrad absolutely loving going to see um, Indian painting and Japanese scrolls loved seeing those 
at the Met. Yeah, I, I mean, I love ukiyo-e. It's one of my favorite, biggest inspirations in my work. I think it's just certain things resonate with people due to their culture, or their upbringing, and you know, it's easier to digest in a way, and you have to stretch out to see that work maybe and, and for it to really resonate because it's not quite as familiar. There's a, a sort of a foreign sensibility in it that's, you know, difficult. It's it's not like, it, like I feel that way about Buddhism. Like when I, when I read about it and when I take part in Buddhist traditions or things like that, I really love it. I think it's, it's amazing. But I do think deep, deep down, I'm a Westerner. It's hard for me to totally lock in because it's not integrated to the way I grew up and the culture of my family and my sensibilities. And so I always feel like um, I'm engaging with it from like an outside perspective. That doesn't mean you can't enjoy it and seek it out. But I think a lot of people, when they find something unfamiliar or it's it seems foreign, they just back away from it. They don't engage in it. You know, right. which is right. a shame because it's I feel the same way about music. I mean, I listen to music from all over the world and, you know, some people will hear, you know, like a, a Raga or like, a, you know, Zakir Hussain or something. And oh, just be Zakir, like, I, don't, I saw Zakir, Zakir Hussain live. Oh, really? So amazing. Wow, that must it's have funny. Been I've never I don't think I've ever talked to anybody about that. It's funny. You're the first person who's ever. <laughs> yeah, it was. Well, you have to you have to prepare Where? your body for. I mean, yeah, if you yeah. think about the maybe it is almost a um you 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 kind of prepare your body for the there isn't going to be a climax like if you think of western music of so much of it it's it's a certain length of time it has this climax you know a led zeppelin song is considered the longest song there is but we do have this kind of snack size song that's very western and very rock oriented and it has this climax and just completes and so when you listen to you know, moroccan music or indian music it's uh it has such a different um length it, you know it's more like a scroll almost and it has a, a monotony of uh narration i guess there's something right. like a, a a much more comfortable uh level of of sinking into something and and maintaining i guess a completely different length of time but there's a reason too because in the west the way records were cut when recording became available they had to truncate down to fit on a 33.3 you know they had to basically be able to squeeze it on there so it and in a lot of those other cultures we're talking Mm -hmm. about with like sufism and like you know another areas of the world music is more integrated into a ritual that uh, lasts over time it's not you know so it it's hard to divorce from entirety you know what's happening with the culture and the way music integrates into that to the location and you know in the west it's just you know the, the the way music was fit into people's lives was different you know and there was the recording possibility you know made things shorter really right that's interesting. And then it I stuck. So it once stuck, they started yeah. cutting records, like 33s, and they could, the songs could only be three minutes long or whatever, they, then that became part of a ritual. So it was the ritual mm-hmm. in relation to that, you know. It's pretty, I mean, I took an amazing class on, I, you know, the kind of the history of music and how it moved from like, Africa really into South America, up the Mississippi, and how, like, different 
cultural and, and social and, you know, geographical events and places and stuff shape music and how it morphs. And it's, it's really, it's really interesting. And I think the same thing happens in visual culture too. It's slightly different, but it's still, you know, it, it, it happens. But now it's just like we happen to be in this age where you could just see and experience everything simultaneously with the internet. So you can, you know, it's all at once. So it's, it's interesting in the sense that creative things created from here on out will have a different sort of linearity or anti-linearity because of the right. um, variation in the, the, the diversity of influence that can be experienced like that, you know. And the delivery system is so, uh, so different. Yeah. And it's standardized in a way. It's even more standardized in a funny way. Like y- you think about physically a computer screen iPhone screen just how prevalent you know that that physical experience is going to be the delivery system is is standardized really across the world in a way that it comes in like it comes in a scroll in a a funny way like Instagram let's say or uh, you know the way you're reading you're actually pulling on it and you know or scrolling through it Um, it's almost I haven't really thought about how that relates to actual scrolls, but <laughs> that's never occurred to me stupidly. Scrolling but. and scrolls. Yeah, and they call it a feed. And... So you're just being fed like you're getting what's coming to you in like Yeah. And know, I used to I took a Japanese art history class actually when I was at Cooper Union and um and Nancy and Leon, I I've never spoken this much about them. They won the Hiroshima art prize. Hiroshima Actually, which way? How should how do Japanese people say Hiroshima? Well, the R isn't an R. It's Hiroshima. Hiroshima. Okay. So Hiroshima. no one's going to pronounce it like that. Hiroshima is how people here would say it. But Hiroshima. Um, okay. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm not even going to apply my... my I, I've worked hard enough to never have a Massachusetts accent. So I, I'm not even going <laughs> to... That's that's fine. I don't stick I don't stick my neck out very far when it comes to I don't want to hear <laughs> I don't want to hear myself try on anything. Um, but uh, actually, a, f- a friend of mine who grew up speaking French, he's like, I am never gonna insult. You know, when I'm when I'm in the United States, when I'm here in America, I'm gonna say croissant. You know, croissant. Right. I'm not gonna say like croissant. You know, he said right, I, right. Yeah, yeah it's, I'm it's just a not going to do that. I, I can't, I can't bring myself. To like, do I'm going to say Mount Fuji is in an artwork. I'm not going to be like, oh, Fuji-san. You know, I'm not going right. to say that. So, <laughs> right. you, you know can't. where to like. There's a time and place. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the one, the one. My Dutch friend, when he did explain just how far off we were with Van Gogh, he's like, it's it's brutal. It's oh, brutal yeah, hearing. And so, yeah, we we all should have just gone with Vincent because. <laughs> Yeah, we're really far off. Yeah, when he actually the, said, oh, cool. it. It, I mean, there's right, right. It, it's so far afield. <laughs> um, yeah. But, yeah, I don't know how long you want me. I don't know what um, structure well, wait, I just want oh, you no, to feel f- free. I, to, I feel free. I feel free. But, okay. but wait, finish yeah. your thought on the Hiroshima Prize. You were ta- or Hiroshima. Oh, yeah. You were sorry. Talking about um, Leon. Yeah, but I used to, it, it was kind of cool. We would, we would go back and check at the Met to, to have them unscroll more of a scroll. You know, you couldn't, yeah. it, it reminds me when I went to visit Ireland and I'm from, I have Irish 
heritage. Irish blood on both sides right, of my right. family. Um, but when I went to visit Ireland, <laughs> they they do not have a lot by way of visual arts, actually. And I'm sure someone will kill me for saying this. I just, I didn't see that much going on. Right. I mean, they're not famous for their exports of historical, historical well, Poetry and writing is definitely... And they, they have the Book of Kells, but it's just open on one page. I mean, it's just such a funny thing. You're like, oh, yeah, you can't really... There's something about... That's all you get. <laughs> yeah, that illustrated manuscript was on page uh, 372 for the next month. But, yeah, something about... There's something great about that. Things coming out very slowly. And, and yeah, our, listen, our kids will never know what it's like to wait for something. My mother, right. my mother was brutal. We were not allowed to watch TV. I grew up. My husband jokes about it because I am just, I, I get no, I get zero cultural references. They all fall flat as if I was Rip Van Winkle or something. Just disappeared during all those years. But, um, God, yeah, I do remember Wizard of Oz would come on once a year, and you were like, you know, waiting for it. And, yeah. Yeah. There's not. I, I actually do love making paintings about waiting too. I like Yeah, there's a stillness in them, right? Or or a kind of I feel like there is it's well, like you were saying before, this like a moment in time or like a frozen sort of event or like they're holding their breath or something. I I I think I once said that. Like my paintings sometimes feel like they're holding their breath, waiting for something yeah. with me I'm waiting with them and um yeah there isn't that much waiting that goes on in some ways anymore um no not really people get really so, irritated when they have to <laughs> yeah and I love getting I used to love getting into trances I mean I I had in absolutely monster monster amounts of downtime because my mother didn't let us watch tv and she had a full-time job in the summer and she used it when i was little she dropped us off at the library in the morning and pick us up at the end of the workday. and she gave oh, us a bag daycare. lunch and we sat in, out in the parking lot and ate our lunch and then went back in and we just sat in the library and it, there was no camp. we weren't going to camp we weren't getting distracted we were right. i remember laying <laughs> in the my sister and I went into the back area of the library and we were laying there like looking at dust underneath a radiator. I mean, just... see, see what that did for your imagination. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. I, I, Thanks, I, I preface it when I, I feel like I'm like a, I feel like I should be a great grandmother raising my kid with stories like that. They're just so. <laughs> when, I, um, when I was a kid, I used to look at dust. Now you kids are punishing amounts, punishing <laughs> amounts of of nothing happening. <laughs> yeah. Do now in the studio? Do you cherish that slow time of like making the work? I imagine it's right in your wheelhouse. Of I don't, or know do you hate I, it? I do get excited to see what's going to happen in my work, and sometimes I do realize, oh, I think I need to really, I think I need to paint that whole ground with rocks I think it has to be covered with rocks and then I do go into a kind of a different zone and I do think it's it does remind me of you know a kind of endurance or like a little bit longer 
experience like a Hussein like piece or something. Yeah, it's like a painful comfort or something. Like, uh, yeah, I know this. And I <laughs> keep thinking, oh, while. on my next one, I'm not going to, let's not go, you know. I do that Every all the time. painting is different. The one thing is, is I do, the one thing that does surprise me, it, I mean, perhaps my paintings look very different from each other to me. I don't know if they, you know, there, there are some that have that garish colors in it and really hyper intense colors. And then there's a lot that are muted. I love, I love color and I love light and time of day and um, types of light. I think that's a huge part of my work. That might be. Hey, did you, when you took uh your Japanese art history, did you re read In Praise of Shadows? No. It's a good one. You should read that one. You might nope. like it. And it send myself a note. I can um, email it to you. Um, but yeah, it's that idea. I think we we have a similar sensibility in that sense. Like, I can look at work that's very similar and find something really amazing about the very, very subtle differences in it, you know? Right. Like I really like Ankawara and his paintings are just the date over and over again, but there's something beautiful about that, you know, and I, you kind of know what you're getting and there's very little difference in them. But conceptually, the whole process of that is just so meditative and beautiful that I could just look at it and think about it. Yeah. 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 Not that your paintings are like that, but you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's that celebrating sort of like, like the subtleties of, you know, and those meaning a lot. And you can really showcase this, that in work if you're heightening the, the drama of the little decisions of the light breaking over this surface or the little pop of color here or there. It can really right. become like main characters in, in the story of the, the work. Yeah, and I but think... But it's, it's I, tough. It's a different speed, right? Like a lot of people may not engage in that. They might not be right. able to... Oh, sure. To yeah. pause for I that. mean, there are people who won't or can't or aren't interested um yeah i think just like you know mute taste in music uh yeah and some of it you can't control i mean you you're a parent it's hilarious when you look at your child at, at such a young age engaging in music and and being who they are um and i've thought a lot about that just i even now as a mother i value it even more um the act of finding out who you are, you know, and, yeah. and discovering yourself seems so, um, it does seem so singular. So if you can, if you do find connections with people, it makes that experience of finding out who you are less, less even frightening. I think, I think it's frightening. If you look at all, you know, middle school kids, it's, it's almost a scary time to find out who you are what you like and yeah you know I agree and and I see a lot of people I mean as as you get older you realize there's almost a panic um you know in in their 20s I felt like a lot of people were panicking about who they were and then you know we, we do live in an in a panic time I mean I think god since you know, September 11th I think um Americans have learned how to panic and 
now it well, seems like saturated. second nature. And, well, there's um, too much info coming at us too. Yeah, and parents panicking about their kids and panicking about, there's just so much panic. You're supposed to panic about, you know, them being exposed to things, panic about them not being exposed to things. and um, It's tough. It, 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 it is easy to, to not, it is easy to live in fear too and and i do think that um making peace with yourself it's, go, it's so corny but uh you know going back to like buddhism i mean to know thyself like that's the it's it's like the ultimate human I don't even want to say achievement, but if you can feel a sense of yourself and to feel at home in yourself, I think it's, um, and make peace with yourself. And I think as an artist too, that is an incredibly important, uh, if you're not comfortable with yourself, you can't really make sincere work. And I agree. And I think, um, and I think that that is maybe one of the reasons I do talk about where that comes out, where we ended up talking about my background, because it isn't, it doesn't feel like fertile ground for becoming an artist. It, it felt, you know, I, I just figured, you know, actually both my parents, my sisters, they're all in education. And when you grew up in a town like Foxborough, you were either going to be you know, a police officer, a nurse. My sister went to nursing school. My my grandmother was actually a nurse. You were, you just had to be useful. And there's something. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily Irish Catholic to some extent. I have noticed that over, you know, examining all my cousins and there's a there's certainly a kind of high enrollment by the Irish Catholics in. Um, you know, jobs like police officer, fireman, nurse, teacher. But that really felt like I had to do one of those four or like something. Like service, or right? Like service to the community. Or yes. To others. Or, yeah. Yeah. Um, and something, and also too, I think, um, you know, we're, we're supposed to be brave. You know, everybody's dad I knew had been in Vietnam and there was a, there was also a kind of an aspect of the men were supposed to be super brave, um, military, or you know, working in like the forces, whatever military forces. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, and so it is hard to go off road. It it is hard to actually say, oh well, I'm gonna. I mean, I'm gonna sort of find out who I am and I'm going to explore my inner life. I mean, my God, I can't tell you the names that I feel like could have been called <laughs> in, in yeah, a way. Ironically, though, it's so brave to do that. I mean, it's pretty brave to go out and like to be an artist in a way that's not mm -hmm. something where you're going to get a lot of support. You know oh, I mean? and you have no, there's nobody else. I mean, you you feel that. Um, I've watched a lot of really absolutely incredible artists, you know, unable to make a living. I mean, I absolutely, completely unable to make a living. And look, I can't, I, I wouldn't make much of a living by myself as an artist. I'm not, you know, 
I, I haven't been, I don't even want to say lucky. It's just, uh, I've, I've, you know, they, there aren't that many crumbs to go around in the art world. I mean, you don't, you, any other discipline, if you're going to the top school or doing, you know, any other discipline has a kind of a, a shuffle. You're, there's a card in the deck where you're going to fit in and you're going to get a job and you're going to have, you know, the people around you um, there too. You know, th you're going to be involved in, in a way. And it's funny, it kind of goes back to that feeling of being useless, but, but there's also something frightening about being unmoored in a way. Right. It is brave. I was just, you know, it's, it's, it is a brave choice in a way to, to go and to commit to it because it is all you and people will feel free to tell you, oh, I don't like what you do. Or I, you know, I remember a couple of times feeling really defensive when people were like, oh God, I hate Leon Golub's work. <laughs> and it would just feel like I got kicked yeah. in the stomach. Um, and, you know, that isn't so it, it, it's of course it's fine to not you know like somebody else's work or feel anything toward it but it is yeah the longer you stay in in a discipline where it's kind of all on you to all of the self-motivation is on you all of the pressure and the um the vision and all of that um yeah so you really do have to be close to yourself to pull that off I think I agree I think you've given a lot of good thoughtful sort of uh, ruminations on being an artist and what it means without explicitly saying it as such too and, uh, and you know I think like I said before given this conversation now I want to go back and look at your work again <laughs> and sort of like mine it or just you know I feel like I'll have a deeper understanding of like what you're doing because uh, you know I was drawn to the work because it's just it's beautiful like the paintings are amazing and it's just really intriguing and there's something like I don't know that you can't put your finger on in a really interesting way that I don't know it, it, they were they're great in that sense but now after talking to you I feel like having a, a, a even different I'll have like a nice deeper understanding of the work on it on it th thank you for that on it on a technical level I just um I had somebody help me lighten uh some of the images because <laughs> a friend of mine just said you know most a lot of your paintings you can't actually even see them and i said yeah well i went i, I checked out at the met because a couple of mine there are some paintings i've made that are so dark that they're i mean my eyes you can't photograph ache. them ache yeah they're so yeah. difficult to photograph but i went to the met and I was looking at you know Rembrandt paintings and you see yourself reflected in them in the in dark in really dark paintings you're actually inside the painting you can't even yeah. see the painting without seeing yourself which is you can't yeah. amusing in a way and that, that was the case with some of these dark paintings and I have no idea why I wanted to make nearly black nighttime paintings but they were wild to make and um I just felt compelled to make them and so so if you do go you can you can look now I I put my work up on on um, I have a website for my work and I altered them and made them lighter 
Nice. Yeah, somebody help me. Tweak so them a little so bit. maybe you'll be able to see them. But that was the thing my friend said. She, she's like, I, I don't think anyone can see anything on your website. There's a few lighter paintings, but for the most part, <laughs> most of it's invisible. I can't see. Yeah, it. I started thinking, oh God, I make I make work you can't even see. Well, it's hard. You got to see. I mean, it's a sliding scale, of course, but you really have to see work in person. You know, to oh, really I totally agree. So I always get sometimes on Instagram. I'll see work and I'll think, oh my God, it's amazing and. I can't wait. And I've had the experience oh, the of being, oh, what? Oh, yeah. no. Huh. It's like, oh, that's how it looks. You know what's really funny? I learned during the pandemic there's a Japanese expression. And it's it's good. <laughs> it's, cool. it's basically translate to mask scam. And it's they, they will say this thing based on people who have really beautiful eyes, but they're wearing a mask. And when they take their mask off, they're like, oh, you know, it's called mask saggy. <laughs> it's like the mask scam and i feel like sometimes that happens with seeing work online and it looks like whoa that looks so cool and then you go to the show and you're like oh that's the surface right you know what i mean where you're like oh okay oh i do find your uh, it there's something so old timey i sometimes worry about that that you know but i suppose we're always going to always need to eat bread and to physically have it in our hands and we're still human even though um I don't think virtual reality has taken over yet. For now, we're so here. for now we're still <laughs> in a body. Give it, a, give it ten and, years. Or but ten. I've I've said before a painting is so much like a human body, like it can get scratched and bruised, and there's nothing kind of like being physically in front. There's nothing like being physically with the, another human being or you know seeing a painting. Which it's, I mean, their bodies they do feel so very physical. Definitely, but. Um, well, when is there going to be a chance where people can see your work? Well, I just had a show come down. In the flesh? Yeah. So I just had that show and it came down um, a matter of weeks ago. So yeah, sorry. Bad timing. It'll be... <laughs> what's that? It's kind of bad timing on my part. But I think that no, show is okay. where I you know, became more familiar with your work. Well, let's visit each other's studios. Yeah, that sounds good. I would good. love that. And Great. you have a show coming up. I know. By the time this airs, it's it's up. So yeah. Oh my goodness! It, wow, it opens oh goodness, like a real in the time we're talking in like three days. So. Well, I can't wait. I'm looking Thank forward you. to to seeing it and seeing you in person. So. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Thanks for talking. All right. Thank you. Sound of Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. A couple things. One, my show's up at Miles McHenry Gallery until April 23rd. It's called Escape Plan. Check that out. There's a catalog with an essay by Stephen Westfall. And the Sound of Vision podcast book for $25 from Altelier Editions with features on a lot of artists, sketchbook sketches, quotes. It's a fun book. Cool images of the work. Well worth the 25 if you ask me, and I'm really excited about it. So you can pre-order that thing on soundvisionpodcast.com website. There's a link, and Altilier Editions is the publisher. So make sure you check that out. If you can, leave a rating review. That would be great. It helps spread the word about the podcast. I've got some really cool people lined up with uh, future podcasts here coming each week. So uh, stay tuned. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for the support. Thanks to Michael Lovett for the introduction. And thanks to Anna for speaking with me. 
Thanks to longtime sponsors, Golden Artist Colors. They make the best stuff. Go check it out at your art store. And many thanks to Fulcrum Coffee Roasters for giving me the caffeine that I need to make all this stuff happen. Really good coffee, by the way. And you could get a subscription, have it ordered and shipped to your house. It's great stuff. If you're a coffee fan, check out Fulcrum. And if you live in Seattle, go to the cafe because they have my artwork on the walls. It's a pretty cool shop. Thank you all.